This morning we are reading from Isaiah 58 verses 5 through 12. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will, rise, will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. All right. Hey, good morning. Happy Memorial Day. It is great to see you. This is your first time. We're really glad you're with us at Trinity. We are in the middle of a series called Deeply Formed Church. And so what we've been doing over really the past year as a leadership team is is prayerfully asking, Lord, who do you want us to be as a church? What What are you calling us to? How are we to live out all of your commands from the scriptures in this particular time and place. And today we're looking at one of these seven marks of a deeply formed church as we've found them in the scriptures. And we're looking at love for the poor and hurting. We believe this is an essential mark of Christian formation. And so maybe at the beginning, just think of, of two people. The first we'll, we'll call her Sally. And Sally went to Mizzou and studied social work. She's passionate about mercy and justice. She's a strong believer. She loves the Lord with all her heart. She's even got a tattoo that says, you know, walk humbly, do justice. You know, it's in Latin. Uh, She serves with the local nonprofit. She is totally committed to justice. And yet she is is wary of of any kind of of evangelism or sharing her faith with with the people she's trying to serve and with her, her coworkers. But she loves the phrase, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. All right, so that's Sally. But picture a, a second person. We'll call him Johnny. Johnny also went to Mizzou. He studied management. He loves the Lord. He's, he's active in church. He sits in the front row. Uh, he serves all the time. And, and he is a natural evangelist. He goes out door to door, and he's sharing his faith, especially in lower-income neighborhoods. But Johnny, is, he is wary of any kind of social involvement. He feels like that's a, a risk of going back to the social gospel, to theological liberalism in the early 20th century. And so Johnny says, preach the gospel and everything else will, will work itself out. And so we have, we have Sally and, and we have Johnny. And, and imagine you're in a community group with them. Now, you know, because it's Trinity, they fall in love and get married and they live happily ever after. But, but imagine you're 
the, the community group leader, what, you know, what do you say to them when they, start, when they start interacting in group? You know, does the Bible move us to social involvement and to, to care for the poor and hurting? And if so, how? How do we live out these things that we see in the scriptures? Now, this morning, I'm beginning with these admittedly hyper-simplistic, over-the-top stereotypes, these two, to suggest that there's a third way. I believe the scriptures actually give us a cohesive and a compelling, I mean, holistic view of mercy and justice. I believe the the gospel actually motivates us as as an internal resource to move us with love and, and honesty and depth into the lives of the poor and hurting. We see the whole gospel going to the whole person, all out into the whole world to promote holistic healing and renewal. And the gospel is, is big enough for all this. And so this is a very complex subject. I mean, talking about the, the poor and hurting is, is actually quite difficult for us because it is so complex. I mean, the, the dynamics of, of injustice and all of their forms in our country are incredibly complicated. But further, the, this issue is deeply personal. Because each of us is coming from a different place. Some of us are coming from a a working class family. Others of us from upper middle class family. We represent different ethnic groups. We represent different different age categories. We're we're coming at this from different perspectives and with different concerns and different goals. And so, yes, there is a cohesive, beautiful vision for gospel-centered social involvement. And yet this is incredibly complex. We're not going to be able to to cover every single topic today. As of yesterday, the sermon was like 90 minutes. I think I got to cut down to the the 32 and a half mark, you know, that I'm I'm shooting for. My last sermon was two weeks ago. That was 26 minutes. Those minutes roll over if you didn't know that. So I'm going to use maybe a few today. I'm going to put a few in a savings account for later. Three questions we're going to look at this morning. First, what is God's heart? for the poor and hurting. Across the the whole spectrum of the scriptures, what is God's heart for the poor and hurting? Second, how does the gospel promote love for the poor and hurting? And then third, what does this mean for us at Trinity? Like here and now for, you know, the Sallies and the Johnnies, for you and me, what does this mean for Trinity? So let's start with God's heart for the poor and hurting. And I want us to spend a few good minutes in Isaiah 58, which is one of the classic texts on God's heart for justice and peace. For some context, it's about 700 BC. Israel is living in their own land. They're they're in the promised land, but they're not free. So they have a foreign nation that's, that's over them and oppressing them. And yet Israel is doing the very same things to one another that, that the other nations are doing to them. They are oppressing one another. Israel is, is exploiting their own poor and hurting. And yet they're also doing all of the same religious stuff that they're supposed to be doing. And they're crying out to God to ask why God is not blessing them. God begins to speak to his people through the prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 58, it opens with these words to his people, shout it aloud. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. And so God is white hot, like burning with intensity, angry with his people. 
He says, you, you say you're seeking me, but your, your lives don't line up with my word at all. You say you're doing all the right things, and yet you're exploiting the poor. Here's what God says. I think this is verse 4. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? We might pause here and and meditate on, on what it is that God's saying. Because God's people, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, I mean, they have some really low points, some really dark seasons. I mean, the idolatry is out of control, but, but here they're actually, they're actually doing this stuff. Like they're going to the temple for worship. They're even fasting probably every single week. I don't know how many of you fast every single week. I don't fast every single week. But their, their spirituality is, is it's there. I mean, they're doing the things. And yet they're also living far from God. They're, they're using God for what they can get from him. They're angry with God that they've not been blessed, that they're not free from the other nations. And they're crying out to God that that's an injustice. A phrase that we've used already in this series is performative spirituality. The Israelites are living in a, a performance-based religion to get the approval of God and to be seen by man. They have the appearance of holiness, but they lack its substance. And we know that they lack the heart of God because they're exploiting the poor and needy. Verse six, God says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? This is the core of the passage. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now, this is where we see the heart of God for justice, for the poor and the marginalized as clear as anywhere else in all of, all of the scriptures, even though it's, it's all over the Bible. And when the scriptures talk about the poor, it's primarily talking about the material, materially poor, those that don't have the same finances and resources as others. But we see God's heart, the same heart for all of the weak and hurting. So anyone who's marginalized, anyone who's a widow or orphan, the, the lepers, the disabled, those with mental illness, anyone who's suffering, anyone who's being mistreated, anyone who's marginalized, anyone who's vulnerable for any reason, God is for them passionately. God is devoted to their good with a fierceness that we see rarely across the scriptures. I mean, God is absolutely devoted to protecting and to lifting up the poor and vulnerable. And the point is, as we expand our our view of poverty and what it means to be mistreated or vulnerable, we, we begin to find ourselves in that definition somewhere. And the point that we're supposed to feel is that we are all desperately poor. We are all completely lost apart from Jesus. Apart from Christ, there is no hope for salvation, no hope for eternal life. We have no hope for right relationships in this life. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead and unable to save ourselves. I mean, we are spiritually poor. We are bankrupt apart from Christ. 
See, if our, our love for the poor and hurting is, is viewed as us reaching down to help somebody who's less fortunate than us, it'll always be patronizing and, and it'll, it'll never last. It'll always do relational damage. But if we see ourselves as the poor and hurting, if we can sit with others in, in their brokenness and bring our brokenness into the place with them, then we can actually support one another, which is the call of the scriptures. I was talking through this yesterday with, with Jesse, and, and she made a great point about working with refugees. She's on staff with City of Refuge. She does uh, birth support and mother care. And she said when she first sits down with a refugee woman, the, the gap between them seems so big. I mean, the language gap is big. The cultural gap is big. The, the resource gap is big. But she said every, every meeting, every hour, every meal, that gap gets a little bit smaller. I mean, after a while, after enough cup of teas, there's, there's really no gap anymore. You're just two friends getting together for tea. And I think that's so true. And that's how we're, we're called to embody this message to care for one another. And if we go back to Isaiah 58 and ask, what is God actually calling his people to? Well, there's two big things that stand out. Benevolence, and what I call restorative justice. The first one's benevolence, and Isaiah 58 gives three examples to share food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, we might call them homeless, and to clothe the naked or any essential resources to those in need. Benevolence is about di directly providing for the, the needs of others. It's about providing a, a financial help or opening your home to a, a friend who's lost a job. It could be buying somebody a meal or paying for medical bills. There's an organizational level to benevolence as well. So opening a, a food pantry or working at a hospital that's designed to meet the needs of the uninsured, providing transitional support for those release, released from prison. All of these things are forms of benevolence. And this benevolence, whether it's personal or organizational, it's an essential ministry of the church. I mean, no other religion, no other social group in human history has done the amount of benevolence that Christianity has done in the past 2,000 years. And yet, in Isaiah 58, God actually calls us to benevolence, but beyond it as well. That second thing is what I call restorative justice. And you see it in verse 6 to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. So restorative justice, it's not just about meeting the direct needs of an individual or a community, but it's about changing the conditions in which they live. It's about uprooting the injustices and the broken systems that keep the oppressed oppressed. I mean, the vision of verse 6 alone is that any form of slavery or human trafficking is completely broken, that every chain, every yoke is broken. Now, restorative justice is far more complex than benevolence, but the history of Christianity provides a lot of examples as well. So William Wilberforce, who was a, a strong believer and worked his whole life in the British Parliament to, to abolish slavery, which then spread throughout the world. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Sojourner Truth, Rosa Parks. There are many examples of restorative justice. So modern examples would be the Equal Justice Initiative or the International Justice Mission. Restorative justice is about creating a, a different sort of place for people to live. 
Now we'll finish out in in Isaiah 58 because God's promises begin in verse eight and they're incredible. It says, if you do this, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. I mean, just think about the, these promises. They are among the biggest and boldest promises of all the scriptures. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. It goes on from there for several more verses, but it's not just Isaiah 58. Psalm 41, it's an entire psalm devoted to this. It begins, blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects them and preserves them. He sustains them. He restores them. I mean, the whole psalm is blessings for those who have regard for the weak. Now, we've been focusing on on Old Testament texts to get God's heart for the poor and hurting, but I want to look too at the life of Jesus. And this is the second thing. How does the gospel promote love for the poor and hurting? Well, in Luke 6, we see Jesus is, he's in Galilee. He's right at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And he goes into the, the temple and, and the custom and he, he goes up front as anybody could do. And he takes one of the scrolls and he unrolls it. And it's the scroll of Isaiah. And he goes to chapter 61. And Jesus begins to read, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the text says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, powerful moment. Jesus directly identifies himself with the heart of God for the poor and hurting. He's identifying himself with God's work to announce freedom and favor for the hurting and marginalized. Jesus perfectly embodies the heart of God in every way. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. Everything that God wanted to say to the world, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, in a person. Jesus perfectly represents the heart of God. And he is constantly giving himself for the poor and hurting. That's why we use the the phrase here, the way of Jesus. Because to be godly is to embrace the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus as we see it in his earthly ministry. And Jesus is continually calling us to serve and love and give to the poor and hurting. In Luke 6, 6, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Not poor in spirit, which he says in Matthew, but just the poor. And he states that loving those who don't deserve it reflects God's treatment of us. Luke 10, he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which commands love for the mistreated, even those that are outside our own people group, even those we would consider our enemies. Matthew 25 teaches that people will be accepted or condemned by God on the last day, depending on how they treated the hungry, the homeless, the immigrant, the sick, the imprisoned. Now, it's not salvation by works, but it's it's a way of saying salvation by grace will demonstrate itself in love for the poor and hurting. 
I believe it was Jonathan Edwards that said, love for the poor is an inevitable characteristic of someone saved by grace. Now, the rest of the New Testament continues this theme. James 1, which was written by Jesus' brother, says that true religion is looking after orphans and widows in their distress. Galatians 6 says we should care for the poor and needy, beginning with those in our own congregations. In Acts 6, it's significant that the first two offices of leadership in the church are the apostles and the deacons. And the deacons exist to meet the practical needs of the congregation and to promote unity between those that have more and those that have less. The gospel is the motivation for everything we do in life and especially for those who are poor and needy. Tim Keller, a pastor and author, has an article called The Gospel and the Poor. And he writes, the gospel is the basis and mainspring for Christian practice, individually and corporately within the church and outside it. Believing the gospel will move us to give to and serve the poor and ministry to the poor is a crucial sign that we believe the gospel. The gospel tells us, as I said, that we are hopelessly dead apart from Christ. That we have nothing to offer in ourselves. But as 2 Corinthians 8 put it, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. When we were impoverished and unable to help ourselves, Jesus came down, took on poverty spiritually and materially, that he might set us free spiritually, that he might transfer his eternal spiritual riches to us. And Jesus, after his resurrection, he calls us to enter a new redemptive age, the the spirit church age, where his kingdom is expanding gloriously and beautifully throughout the whole earth. And one day we know Jesus will return at a time no one knows but the Father, at the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet, Christ will descend, the dead will be raised, and everything will be made new again. At that moment, the new creation, what we look forward to, not only humanity, even the non-human creation will be transformed. That's like, what? I mean, all of creation transformed in new heavens and a new earth. That's the the vision, the the end game of Christianity. Sin is no more. Brokenness is no more. Violence is no more. Injustice is no more. When we look to the new creation, there's no poverty. There's no hunger. There's no racism. There's no, like, damn school shootings. And Joseph, you can say damn occasionally if it, Fits the context. You get one good cuss a month. Like finally, all of that will be done. And in this moment, in this life, as we look forward to the new creation, the vision of humanity perfected, we see what it is we're supposed to pursue. We look to things as they ought to be and we try to work towards that. Every act of kindness, mercy, compassion, justice, evangelism, it's all looking forward, leaning forward to the new creation. So that means that the gospel is the message of our salvation, past tense. It's the hope of our lives, future tense, but it's also the the power, the empowering presence of God in us, present tense. And so that leaves one last question. What does this mean for us at Trinity? 
Well, this series is about how we can become a deeply rooted church. We're not going to be able to say, you know, everything about, about poverty and all the different dynamics. This is just one stone in the foundation of our theology and practice here. But we see that we cannot be a healthy church or a deeply rooted church without love and service to the poor and hurting. So I want to suggest a few important implications for us as we wrap up. Number one, love for the poor and hurting is first a posture of the church, not a ministry. It's a posture, not a ministry. I remember a couple of years ago when we were meeting all the way back at Columbia Independent School, we had just started, it was like 50 or 60 people. And a young guy, college student came in and after the service, he, you know, I was talking to him and he was like, yeah, you know, I like the service, it's pretty good, but tell me what you're doing in the community. I was like, well, sure. And so I kind of turned around and I said, hey, this is, uh, Lauren, she works in, a, in a, one of the most difficult elementary schools in town. This is Garrett. He runs a nonprofit that works with refugees. This is Mackenzie. She's a social worker that works with domestic violence. That's Mark and Allison. They're foster parents. Like, this is what the church is doing in the community. And he goes, no, no, no. What are you guys doing as a church in the community? I was like, okay, I see what you're getting at. And yes, we do serve this neighborhood once a month in some practical ways. And if you're interested, we're doing it next Saturday. You could join us. He was like, no, I can't. That's like my day for me time. I'm like, okay. But I really believe that our biggest impact as a church is not what we go and do all together like one Saturday a month, as important and helpful as that is. As a, ch- as a church, we exist to, to equip you and encourage you in what you're doing nine to five every single day in the places where God has put you. Even if you're not in a nonprofit or, or one of the toughest schools in town, we want to empower you to live a life of justice and mercy. This is a posture of the church, not a ministry. Second thing, and this is fairly big, this is a bit of an announcement. You're here today, Memorial Day weekend, you know, you guys get news before anybody else. One of the things we've been talking about since we started is creating a nonprofit that's focused on doing restorative justice in our community. So for the last few years, uh, we've been wanting to start this in prayer and conversation. We've been asking, is this the right time? Is it the right time? And it's always felt like not yet. Um, But we have had plans for what we call Restore 573, since the earliest, you know, vision casting of the church. And we believe that in the next maybe six months or 12 months that we're going to have this fully established and off the ground. And the reason we're doing it as a nonprofit is because all of the advice we've gotten from other churches, from people that have been doing this for years, is that you can do a lot of benevolence in and through the church, but to really do the work of restorative justice, it's helpful to have sort of a separate entity. And so it's something people can give to. It's something that people can serve. It's, it's still an extension of the church, but it's a way for us to stay focused on what the church alone can do while also stepping into the needs of the city in a, in a big way. So that's coming. You know, if you want more information, you can talk to me, you can talk to Cam. Part of him coming on staff full-time in July is, is creating more space for us to do things like this. All right, that's number two. Number three. This is related, but we want to help you find your, your square inch. And what I mean by that is there was a Dutch pastor named Abraham Kuyper that became convinced that God's heart for the world often moved people outside of the four walls of the church. And so though he was a pastor and theologian, he started a large public university, and he eventually became the prime minister of the Netherlands in the late 1800s. 
And he famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. There is nothing in all of creation that does not belong to Christ. And so our hope is for each of you, through our community groups, through everything we do as a church, we want to help you find your square inch. Like maybe there's somebody in here who, who is the next Dr. King or, or, you know, world changer. Maybe not, though. Maybe what we have is a lot of people who can care for and cultivate their square inch. Who can understand this is how God has, has gifted me and wired me. Who can understand this is the unique context and, and place where he's put me. And this is the place where I can make a profound contribution in this community or beyond. And so the question is, what's your square inch? What's that place where God has put you to do something that nobody else can do exactly like you? Now, fourth, the final thing, we want to make the connection between prayer and uh, ministries of mercy and justice. We want to keep together prayer and mercy and justice. Prayer is the heartbeat of this church. We often say community is the lifeblood in the context of everything. We just kind of mix metaphors, whatever works in the moment. But prayer, prayer is central to everything we do. It keeps us alive and beating. And I'm sure you're familiar with the biggest threat to serving one another, serving the poor and hurting. It's it's developing self-reliance, you know, overextending ourselves, exhaustion, burnout, getting, getting cynical, And prayer is what helps keep us tethered to the presence of God. When we look back to Isaiah 58, we see God wasn't angered by the people's fasting. It's why they were fasting and how. They were fasting out of a religious obligation, but they lacked the heart of God. Instead, the posture of prayer and fasting, that's total and complete dependence on the Lord, acknowledging our own hunger and poverty. It's the exact thing that gives us the endurance for the work he calls us to. We are not going to have all the answers. We're going to try and fail and learn as we go. But we already have all of the resources we need. We have the love of the Father. We have the power of the gospel. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We have one another. We can step into the needs of our community as one of them. The power of Jesus will sustain us, and in everything we keep our eyes on him. It was the same Jesus that came to earth to identify with the poor materially and spiritually. The same Jesus who was born in a feeding trough and raised in a poor family. The same Jesus who, according to one author, rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, spent his last evening in a borrowed room, and when he died was placed in a borrowed tomb. His tormentors cast lots for his only possession, his robe, because he had been stripped of everything. All this gives new meaning to the question, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? The answer is on the cross where he died among the thieves and marginalized. Jesus on the cross was the poorest man possible. He had been stripped of everything. He had lost everything and everyone. He was poor in every way. And there he was also victorious. And once you see Jesus in this way, poor, broken, and hurting, you'll never see the world quite the same again. Let's pray.